Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be, across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. And I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuggah, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-track so you can mix along. You also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you about a brand new product we just launched. The Complete Beginner's Guide to Recording Rock and Metal. It's a short two-hour course hosted by Ryan Fluff Bruce, where he walks you through every single step of the process for recording a complete song from scratch in a simple home studio. If you've been thinking about getting into recording but you weren't sure where to start, this is for you. He gives you a list of exactly which gear that we suggest you get, shows you how to set it all up, then gives you a step-by-step guide to record a guitar, bass, and vocals, and programming MIDI drums everything you need to record an awesome high quality demo with no more than a few hundred dollars worth of gear and just to make sure you have absolutely everything you need the course includes copies of toneforge menace and gain reduction by joey sturgis tones and a virtual drum plugin from drumforge that's over 200 dollars in software included with the course so it's pretty much a no-brainer if that sounds cool to you you can get instant access to the course and all the included plugins at recordingmetalguide.com. And one last thing I want to tell you about, and this is really cool, I want to tell you about a cool new partnership we've got with Empire Ears. They make a quality in-ear monitor that lets you bring your studio with you anywhere. Seriously, you can mix with these. And I know it sounds crazy for me to say, but it is absolutely true. If you're at all mobile with your audio or you are in a situation where volume is a problem, like you mix out of an apartment, you may want to check these out. And here's how it works. Basically, URM users are getting hooked up with an exclusive discount and personalized support. And think about it like this. How sick is it to be able to take your reference with you every single place you go? With Empire Studio Response Monitor, you can have a flat response sound you can trust every single place you go. So for more info, just reach out to Dylan at EmpireEars.com for details. That's D-Y-L-A-N at E-M-P-I-R-E-E-A-R-S.com. All right, here goes. I will shut up now. Chris Kelly, welcome back to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. Third time. Yeah, take three. Actually, fourth time. Fourth time. Well, you were on once before. No, like, I don't have an episode yet. You don't? No. Are you sure? Sh- I'm 100% wow. positive. The, we, we recorded what was supposed to be my first episode, decided it wasn't good enough, added on to it, and then couldn't 
<laughs> couldn't edit the two together, and so now we're redoing it completely. Uh, so you know, it's been such a long span of time right. between them that for some reason I felt like we released one, and then we tried to do a second podcast and it didn't work, and then we tried to do a third <laughs> one and it didn't work, and now we're trying a fourth. So it's never yeah, even worked in the first place. You're, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we, uh, just, we just keep we keep fucking up on one end or another. See, I guess because we had a header image already the first time. Um, I guess somewhere in my mind, you know, months later, I had it associated with already done. Yeah, yeah. I think like every like both both times we were close to releasing. We had the header image done and like ready to ready to put out, and then it was, and then like something would come up every time that was like, yeah, like this isn't good enough or this isn't working or whatever. So, man, I really hope this one works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> well, we'll after I, I feel like after three or four tries, I'm no longer worth it. So, it's the universe conspiring, or it's not, but. I mean, every once in a while, I have to can an episode or something happens. It's just there's been certain times where you know you're capable of having a great episode with somebody, but something about the conversation just isn't what you hoped it would be, or there's some technical thing or something. Right. Yeah, like you, you could, you could end up closing out the conversation by talking about parasailing or something, and then that, because <laughs> that's yeah. that's where we ended our first conversation. <laughs> you don't like parasailing? Uh, maybe we shouldn't get into that this time. All right. <laughs> I feel like it got us on a tangent last time, and it just totally took us out of it. Fuck parasailing. We'll just leave it at Fuck that. Fuck parasailing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that one in. Uh, 25 to 30 episodes kind of just gets ditched. Um, but, you know, I love it when people can redo it. I guess it's really similar to redoing a take or something or when, have you ever had that when you're recording where uh, shit is just going shitty one day um, and, you know, tracking drums or something and it's just dude's left foot's not working. Like, it's just, He's playing like like a little kid, and it's just dumb. No, no idea. The click, just you know what I'm saying. Just problems. Yeah, and every you can't get into it. Yeah, everyone's yeah. off their game, and you just spend an entire day trying to grind through it. And and then you just, come back the next day, and it's great. Right, right, yeah, but but you know, you come back the next day and listen to everything that you got the day before, and you're like, oh, this is fucking garbage. <laughs> Like why did sometimes, we? Why did we spend the whole day? You know. Sometimes I won't even listen to it. I I have to. I can't bring myself not to. I feel because like I, I always have this inkling of hope that when I come back in, it's like, well, maybe I was just in a bad mood yesterday. Maybe I was just fair like enough being overly picky. You know what I mean? And maybe it's fine. But nine times out of ten, my my instincts are correct. You know, that's an interesting point because that. It's happened to me plenty of times, and I know it's happened to plenty of people on here where, you know, that it was getting late in the night and everything was sounding like shit, especially on mixing. This is normal to normally happens on mixing. And then yeah. you come in the next day and you're like, I don't know why I was going so crazy. Like, it sounds fine. Yeah, but the thing mi- is, mixing and writing is what, is yeah, what happens. Yeah. 
not necessarily with drum tracking. Like, I feel like I've got, I'm a pretty good judge for like what a shitty performance is. Uh, and if I'm not feeling it, I'm probably not going to feel it the next day. And so I've just gotten to the point where the reason I'd want to just ditch it and not even hear it is just to not give it the chance to be rescued, you know, and don't even right. give it the chance not, to have yeah, someone be your, like, not give yourself the opportunity to settle on, on something yeah. that's not up to par. Yeah. Yeah. It, when you know, especially when you know that the person you're working with is capable of something great, I feel like sometimes if you're working with great people, their bad days, you know, are so much better than most people's best days that you can come back and be like, hmm, it wasn't that bad, some editing, et cetera, et cetera. But if you know it could be a lot better, I just say, fuck it. Just, and I, I try to not give myself the chance to psych myself into going with something worse. Then it doesn't always work out that way, but that's at least the goal. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, if, if it's in the case that you're talking about where you know that the, the performer is sick, then, you know, at that point you can say, you know what, I'm not even going to listen to the take from yesterday. Just throw it out because you know that you're going to get something good out of them. But sometimes dudes just suck. <laughs> so, sometimes. So, yeah, yeah. So in, the, in those cases, keep the takes from the day before. Do more takes today. I mean, in some ways, keep all the takes. Right. But uh, when I say I get rid of them, I don't actually mean get rid of them forever. I just mean get rid of them as in... Don't open them back up oh, and okay. start gotcha. and start from scratch. Like I've very rarely actually delete anything. I oh, see. I'm so much more like absolute with my choices on that. It's like if I don't like it, it's just like I don't put things. Well, with drums, with drums, I'll put things onto playlists, uh, but or I'll like save them into a folder or something like that so that I can hear everything later. But with everything like guitar tracking, vocal tracking, anything like if I say if I'm like yeah this isn't good enough or no I don't want it to sound like this like it's just delete gone you know clear unused audio <laughs> so um, yeah well that that yeah uh, okay I guess I need to clarify when there's the possibility that the person might not be able to do better um, and you know that that's a possibility and you're running out of time then the I guess the the delete function it needs to be used a lot more wisely but there's no at the same time there's no reason to keep anything crappy around it's just taking up space and cluttering things up just get rid of it so yeah, yeah. i agree yeah i mean i've had to you know especially with drummers like i've had records where just take after take after take after take and it's like there's always the one part that they keep fucking up you know like so, sometimes like somebody will do a take and then one section will be messed up and so you think well if i do another take they're not going to fuck that section up both times right like but it's the same thing every single time so i'll have i'll have drummers where they just they they come in they don't do anything right and i i keep going 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 and then eventually i'm just like all right you know what just give me like 10 good hits on each drum and then I just program the drums and, <laughs> and I layer in the, the the samples from them hitting the drums just so that they can say that there's a natural sound in there you know I'm, I'm very quick to with a, with the drummer that's not worth it especially I'm very quick to give up on that because it's just it's not worth anybody's time or money to 
try to force a dude who can't play the parts to keep trying like oh maybe he'll maybe he'll get it after six hours of trying and not be exhausted and even worse than no way yeah no way so the thing is where i think that people screw this up or just need to think about it a little bit more logically is that yes as a producer you are supposed to pull the best performances out of people that is 100% true. However, as a producer, you're also supposed to understand what they're capable of. And the only way to understand what someone is capable of is to understand kind of what they're not capable of. And, and I mean, there might be some gray area. Uh, people can impress you. But there's, a, there's an edge. There's an outer edge to that gray area, typically. So if the reason that a drummer is not doing a good job is that they just don't know the parts that well, well, okay, a few hours of learning the parts with a great drummer and uh, you could be in really good shape. But if the reason the drummer's not doing a very good job is because he sucks and his technique's not there, well, uh, next, right. in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, sort of elaborating on you know what your job as the producer is, it's your, like, well, okay, especially in the instance of a, a band and or drummer that sucks, it's not only your job to be able to recognize what somebody is or is not capable of, but it's your job to make everything sound good because that client is likely not going to be able to differentiate between this sounds like shit because we sound like shit and this sounds like shit because you're a bad producer, right? So <laughs> Very it's true. Some, yeah, so it's something, it's something that you're putting your name on, especially when you're starting out. You know, I'm by no means a household name even remotely. So, you know, uh, it's very important. You are to in my me. house. Oh, well, that's, that's nice. I appreciate that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's very important for me to make sure that anything that I put my name on sounds as good as I can possibly make it sound. And so there's, a, I guess, a bit more of a burden that comes with that because that usually leads to a lot, uh, a lot more frequent, difficult conversations you know, because until you're at a level where people are just banging down your door to work with you, you're just kind of taking what you can get. And so when you have a client that's not totally up to snuff, again, they don't understand that something sounds bad because they sound bad. They think it's your fault. And so you have to have that conversation and try to navigate that uh, that headspace of saying like, no, dude, it's because you can't play, you know, what I mean? like you have to try to get that across without without alienating the client or losing their business. You know, sometimes I'm not sure I agree with you 100 percent of the time. Here's why. If they can't differentiate between them sucking or you sucking as an engineer, what's to say that giving them a logical explanation will bridge that gap. I mean, we're not always talking about logical people. So yeah. sometimes they might just get mad at you and still sure. think you suck. So I think that at the end of the day, what actually matters most, kind of what you said, is what what it sounds like. And so I think you just got to do what you got to do. Yeah, that's fair. You can't blame the bands. Um, and I think back to high school, my band recorded at a studio, okay? Uh, we went to a studio. I saved up for it um, out of some money I worked for over a summer. Nobody else in the band paid. I mean, it was only $250 total, but still, you know, at like 14 and 15, that was a lot. And right. uh, so we went in, and I was a guitar player, and we had another guitar player. And when it came time for him to record his parts... It was just, man, this is one of the my clearest memories from back then. He couldn't fucking do it. Just songs that we had 
practiced and he was fine with. He was just falling apart in the studio. And, you know, this was on tape. It, there was no way to really edit it. it. We didn't have budget, knowledge, or anything like that. It was just, it was this guy's turn to go, and the going was not going good. And, you know, like, everyone was in the room, and they were kind of, like, laughing behind his back, and he could hear them, and it was just, it was traumatizing him and, until he left. And then the engineer turned around, or the producer, whatever you want to call him, and was like, you want to try? It's like, okay, so we knocked the whole thing out in like two hours. Uh, the next day, the guitar player came back, and I guess he recognized my playing because we sounded completely different, and he was seriously offended that we were best friends. That was, our friendship never recovered. We were best friends, like, you know, that inseparable, like, high school type of best friends. It, right. It, it ended the fuck out of that, and... I guess the thing that to this day I take was that it was obvious that his parts sucked. There was no question about it. Everybody knew, including him, that his parts sucked. In addition to that, he didn't pay any money for the recording. So he had no say whatsoever. Right, so shut up. Right. So shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that doesn't matter. That's logical, right? So you would think that if that's if you fuck up that bad to where someone's giving you a ride and you can't do what you were supposed to do, and someone else does it, you might want to thank the other person for swooping in and saving the day, but that's not how emotions work. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm giving a logical, uh, I guess a logical uh, explanation of how I think it should have gone if everyone just worked on pure logic, but they don't. And well, I so, think that's a real symbol, like being able to operate on logic, whether whether the band is a profe- you know, quote-unquote professional band or not. I think that being able to operate under that type of logic is is a real dif- uh, differentiator between, you know, a, a pro band and a non-pro band, even at the local level. Because, you know, I just had a client in fairly recently, and it was my first time working with them, and they came in, and I, you know... One of them, one of them was left-handed. One of them was right-handed, which means they weren't going to be able to use the same guitar, which was concerning for me for a local band because I didn't, you know, I hadn't heard them play yet. I didn't know, how, you know, what kind of inconsistencies I was going to be dealing with. All of them, and so I. Right. So I started the conversation. Yeah, I was like, I was like, what kind of picks do you guys use? What kind of amps are you guys trying to use? What kind of strings does everybody play? And every answer was completely different from both of them. And I was like, this is going to be a fucking nightmare. And so I tried to. I tried to start the conversation of like, okay, we might want to, and the lead guitar player was like, let me stop you right there. If you want Alex, that was the other guy, if you want Alex to do all the rhythms, have him do all the rhythms. I don't give a fuck. And I was like, you're the fucking man. <laughs> like, you just made my life so much easier. Okay, great. We're going to have Alex do all the rhythms and we'll have you do all like the little melodies and the lead things. And perfect. Like, their their devotion was to making the product sound good and they left their egos at the door. And I think that being able to do that whether it's in a recording scenario or in a performing scenario, anything, you know, musical or otherwise, if you're able to just know what your strengths are and acknowledge when somebody else is better at something than you are and allowing that person to take the lead, I think that's a real, like, that's a really valuable quality. It's a huge advantage. Yeah, being able to check your ego. Um, but, I mean, you know, with with your story of having to redo that, uh, that guitar player stuff. I mean, I had a similar experience, not with 
playing. Well, I've had experiences with playing where, you know, I have clients where the neither of the guitar players can handle it. And I know that the eagle egos are eagles. Egos are, uh, are fragile. And so when they leave, I just have to retract the guitars myself. And if it's that bad, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll usually not notice. Like, they'll just be like, dude, you made us sound sick, you know? <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but you know, with my with my band, not with Galactic Empire, but with my other band that I've had since high school, um, you know, the first record that we did, I was producing that record, but I didn't have a, a drum room. And um, we had signed to this shitty, scammy label at the time. And uh, they were like, we have a studio for you. So we're like, fuck, yeah, we're going to go there. And when we got there, you know, the whole time I was telling my drummer, and this was this part was on me. I was basically telling my drummer that he didn't have to be a hundred percent perfect because Pro Tools was gonna fix it. So I was that guy, right? <laughs> but we got there and they didn't have Pro Tools. How <laughs> like could we you? we weren't tracking to tape, but it was it was like the next it was like the first step towards a digital aftertape, you know, as so we were tracking analog and then running it into the computer. The engineer was legally blind and so he wouldn't have been able to do any precise editing anyway. So we tracked the parts. We spent two or three days in the studio tracking technical death metal and it was a nightmare. Uh, my drummer's feet were not where he claimed that they were. You know, all the usual issues that you expect when uh, you know a 16-year-old is like, yeah, I can play death metal drums. And so I did exactly what I mentioned before. Uh, we didn't have him take samples because I didn't know that was a thing back then. But I basically waited. Uh, I looked through the tracks and, and when I got them back and I waited until I found like a slow part where there was just an isolated snare hit, an isolated kick hit, something, you know. And so I just took one shots of all the drums and then I programmed everything in superior and then just da, 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 you know pasted everything in there. I didn't even phase align it because I had no idea what I was doing back then. Um, but yeah, I had, you know, my drummer didn't know what he was doing and the engineer, he knew what he was doing within his own right, but he didn't know what we were after. Like he wasn't used to recording that type of music. So I had to, I had to just fix both people's mistakes, <laughs> you know? So, um, and I didn't tell anybody uh, and no one was any the wiser. Here's what's weird to me about your story is on one hand, you were the dude who was telling your drummer it's okay if he's not that good. Then on the other hand, you were the guy who was saving the day. So what sounds like, sounds like I don't get it. Because normally the dude that's good enough to save the day knows that the drummer shouldn't fuck off. Right. So, okay. So I or guess. Or was it just youth? Yeah. I mean, so. I guess I should I should rephrase. I wasn't telling him that he didn't have to like like you don't have to play that well. What I was saying was, you know, if you're not a hundred percent on the arrangements, it's okay because oh, okay, we, can yeah. do, we can do stuff in sections, and like you know, the engineer will be able to edit bad things in or out. And we have this technology called punching in. Right, right, and and when we got there, I was saying like, yeah, um, so I'm thinking maybe we can do. Um, you know, just have him hit the verse a bunch of times until we get a good take and then the chorus a bunch of times and so on. And the engineer was like, what? Like, no, that's not how this works. He's going to play from beginning to end and we're just going to go until we get a good take. And his justification for that, which again, the guy was super old school, so I understand his his thought process, but it's, it's also kind of like get with the times. You know, it's like if a high school kid knows what's up, then so should you. His justification was like, Mike Portnoy doesn't let anybody edit his drums. And I was like, 
cool well my drummer's not mike portnoy <laughs> so like yeah <laughs> can, can we can we maybe consider the possibility that we might have to finesse this a little bit man whenever i hear shit like that there's two things that sends off like two major alarm bells in my mind and i immediately think i'm talking to an idiot but uh whenever i hear <laughs> like i've i've talked about this before but there was this one time that a band local band came to my uh, studio and rented it for video because mm -hmm. it was a really nice studio in Florida. And they did an unplugged thing, so like had candles and acoustic guitars. Mm -hmm. And the vocals were horribly out of tune. And they were like, it's okay, Allison, Chain's unplugged was out of tune too. And it's like, they could do it, we can do it too. It's like, bro... <laughs> You're so delusional right now. So anyways, right. when people say that kind of stuff, number one, it's like, how do you know that Mike Portnoy doesn't get his drums edited? Were you there? Or did you just read that in some article? Or did some guy that doesn't know Mike Portnoy tell you because he knows some guy that doesn't know Mike Portnoy that told him? Or, like, I mean, at the, in the absolute best case scenario, in that this dude's 100% correct, he's well-informed, and Mike Portnoy has never had a single hit of any of his drums edited. Well, it's Mike fucking Portnoy. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, the dude, like, at the time, he was still in Dream Theater, so it's like, yeah, that dude's been in Dream Theater for, like, 25 fucking years. Like, he's really good. My guy is 17. <laughs> like, we, there's some, there's gotta be some room for error here. And also, like... For what it's worth, I'm not going to say the parts were harder because they weren't. It weren't at the time, you know, they weren't nearly as like progressive kind of stuff that Portnoy would do. But the double bass was certainly, you know, the, at least the the goal for what the double bass parts were supposed to be was a lot faster. It was a lot closer to like Behemoth than Mike than what anything that Mike Portnoy does. Like Mike Portnoy never triggered his kicks, you know. So, um, so is yeah. I mean, it's just. Comments like that, I mean, like you said, they make you feel like you're immediately talking to someone who doesn't know who doesn't know anything because it's like, you know, either you don't have any idea what you're talking about or you're so out of touch that it's no longer worth it for me to be working with you. Or both. Or both, right. Or both. Uh, and I think that lots of the people who have been on Nail the Mix and on this podcast actually started their studios because of experiences working with guys like that. Um, so any guy out there, girl too, who has that attitude towards your clients, you are creating your competition. Right. Straight up. Yeah, and I'm, I'm fairly certain, I, I could be wrong, but I'm fairly certain that studio's out of business now. If they're not, it's just the dude recording his friends. You know what I mean? Because it was kind of like a hole in the wall in Philly. I don't, I, I can't imagine it was some, you know, it was something that was costing him a whole lot of money. So, um, you know, maybe it still is up and running, but it's it's not putting out, <laughs> you know, it's not putting out anything that anyone listening to this is going to recognize. You know, it's probably all local Philly bands in the same position that my band was in. You know, you, you know, young or old, they don't really know what the studio experience is supposed to be like. They know that this guy has a studio. They see that there's a console in the picture, and they're like, that's where we need to go, you know? You know, I also think that people will be like, well, Kurt Ballou does shit raw. <laughs> right. What the fuck? He's always done shit raw. And it's like, well, you know, are you the guitar player from a legendary band who uh, became right. a producer? Yeah. You know, are, are you working with Nails? Uh, you know, is that the record you're going to record raw? The Nails record? Or are you Kurt Ballou? 
know, like it's just recording something raw doesn't mean it doesn't just mean that that's the end product, like on either end. Like it's first of all, like, are you that good of a performer or is the engineer that good of an engineer? Cause like, I could tell you right now, you put me in Kurt Ballou's studio, like I can figure out how to get everything plugged in, but I grew up in the digital age. If you're having me track a whole record analog, it's not going to sound as good as Kurt Ballou. Like it's just not, you know? So just making those broad kind of blanket statements is incredibly ridiculous and, and uninformed. You know, I had a, uh, when I was in college, so I was one of those people who went to college for audio engineering because I didn't realize that having a degree in this field means jack shit. <laughs> um, so I, so you got the degree. I got the degree. Yeah, I got the well, degree. Good it's, for a ba- you. it's a bachelor's in science, so it's uh, it's a little bit better than a bachelor's in arts. It, it looks a little bit better on paper, but um, still equally as useless. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, at the time, you know, when the schools always tell you like, oh, we we have all these connections at all these great studios and all these great broadcast houses, and like we'll find a place for you. Like if you come here, you'll be you'll be set for life. And of course, <laughs> no, of course, none of that happened. Like <laughs> I found my own internship with Carson and Grant which then ended up with me in Galactic Empire. So, like, I mean, technically that school did get me here, but they didn't do it. You know, it was all me. But anyway, I uh, for my final project, I had to... Uh, I mean, they basically let us do whatever we want, you know, based on anything that we had learned in the curriculum. And so I chose to record a band because that's what I was trying to do. And um, it was uh, a friend's band from high school, and they were, they were kind of like this indie rock you know, sort of artsy fartsy kind of band. And, um, the studio at the school was actually really nice. You know, they had a, an SSL duality and all kinds of fancy outboard gear and, you know, a room with variable acoustics and all kind of shit, all kinds of shit. So it was, it was a nice space. And, um, so I brought them in there, but like it was a nice space, but the room was not huge. Um, you know, it was probably the, uh, I don't even I don't even know how to compare in terms of like square footage or whatever. Like it was a nice room, but it wasn't a huge room is, is what I'm getting at. And so we mic'd up the drums and I put like like two or three room mics on it. And the guitar player was like, we need more room mics. I was like, why? Why? Yeah. And he said and he said, well, because on that Nirvana album in utero, I heard <laughs> I heard that there I heard that there were like. 30 That's awesome. Room, I heard that there were like 30 room mics on the drums and I said, "Okay, well, I don't know anything about the production of that record. I think 30 room mics sounds a bit excessive. That being said, if they were using 30 room mics, they probably were in a giant room that also had some kind of a loft and then an attic and then a hallway and then a stairwell and they were And it using, was Butch Vig. Right. Well, at that I mean I didn't, I didn't know who Butch Vig at that time was, but even so, I was like, "And it's Nirvana, like whoever they have and whatever they have at the, at their disposal is like absolute state of the art. Oh wait 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 wait! In utero, I don't know if it was Butch Vig. Hang oh, on. Butch, right, Butch Vig was Butch Vig was never mind. Uh, yeah. I think it was Steve Albini was in utero. I think. Yeah. I think it doesn't. It point is, it doesn't matter. No, no, <laughs> it is. It, it is Steve Albini. I just actually need to correct this before I get slayed. So uh, <laughs> right before the internet slain before, before internet I get slain. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Steve Albini. Yeah. So, but I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't know who did it at the time, but I said it's also Nirvana. Like the, the the facilities and the people and like anything that they had at their disposal is the absolute best that you can get like and they just like money is not an object like you're getting this recording for free because i'm doing it for a project and also again like that room was probably a huge room 
with a loft and an attic and a hallway and a stairwell and everything. And they put mics in all those different places just to make sure they got every ounce of reflection that they could possibly capture. We have one room. I don't even have 30 mics to set up, but if I did, they would all be capturing the same exact fucking thing. So we're not putting 30 room mics in here, you know? So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, just a million stories to illustrate that, you know, comparing your project in any way, shape or form to somebody else's project as, as an argument to why something should be done a certain way is not the way to do things. Like do things the way that you or your engineer know how to make things sound good. Because that's going to be your best bet. So you know how people say that at the beginning of an artistic journey, you have to copy people, and from copying people, that's where you develop your own style. Uh, lots of jazz musicians say that, photographers say that, artists say that. Like, or you can just copy people and stay it. that way and wear a Darth Vader costume like me. And <laughs> yeah, true, true, yeah. true. No, but you know, have you heard that saying that like you start by copying people and then? Eventually, your style emerges. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I think that rings very, very true, especially. Yeah. So, where's the line though between that and uh, stop comparing yourself to other people? You're not Nirvana. You're not, uh, you know, you're not Alice in Chains. You're not Mike Portnoy. Like, get get realistic. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes. I think it just comes from experience because whether it was with writing or mixing for me I started out that exact same way like when I was when I was writing I was trying to be Lamb of God or Dream Theater or you know whatever band I was into at the time and when I was mixing I was trying to be Nolly or Taylor Larson. I mean, those are more modern, you know, uh, examples. Um, you know, I grew up on stuff like As I Lay Dying and whatever. So, you know, uh, uh, I know that Colin Richardson mixed a bunch of those records and stuff. So I was always trying to achieve whatever sound those guys were putting out, Andy Sneap, you know, whatever. And, um, but I think the more that you, like, you're, there's always going to be that bug that's like, I have to make it sound like that guy's. If I can make it sound as good as that guy's, then I'm golden, right? So you're always going to be chasing that, <clears throat> or at least for a while. But then you're, you're never going to get there. You're never going to make it sound like their stuff because you're not them. But after a while, you're going to start realizing that like, okay... Like on this record, I was really into Nolly's stuff. So I was trying to make my stuff sound like Nolly's. And on this record, I was really into Colin Richardson's stuff. And I was trying to make myself sound like Colin Richardson. But both of these mixes sound pretty similar, right? And I think that's where you start picking up on what your style actually is. And then that's when you start developing, you know, your kind of go-to tricks or your go-to plugins or whatever, you know, any of the technique that comes along with that. I think you just have to eventually realize that like, you know, I tried to sound like all these different people and it just ended up sounding like me every time. And that's when you finally learn to embrace it. Because that's what that's what happened with music for me, too. Not again, not with Galactic Empire, because we don't write any of that stuff. Um, but with my other band, again, it was Lamb of God, Dream Theater, uh, The Faceless for a while. You know, like as as our tastes progressed, so did our or so did my attempts to sound like those people that I was listening to. And what eventually emerged was something that, at least in my opinion, is is unique in its own right. So I think it's just a matter of like trying, failing, trying, failing, and then realizing that something good actually did come out of those failures because you finally have found your identity. How long did that take before you realized that? With writing? Just the first time you ever realized it ever, like, elapsed time. I, I mean, I get... I, like, cause it was different for, you know, I've been writing music longer than I've been mixing it. So for writing, like, with my other band was probably... 
you know, six or eight years, something like that. Like basically when we were writing our second record and I started realizing that, you know, if I tried to write a Lamb of God riff, it just sounded like an Illustrium riff, you know? Um, so it was probably about six or eight years of doing that. And then with mixing, with mixing, I think it was a little bit quicker um, because I think I hit, I think I hit my stride with that uh, in a shorter period of time than I did with writing or playing. So um you know, that was probably three or four years, but it still, it still took some time, you know, like I, I started out, I started out just kind of doing whatever I could figure out how to do. It wasn't until later in my production career that I was into the whole, like emulating people thing. Um, but now, you know, now if you go on my website, like my stuff all sounds different depending on the client. But if you listen to the different like death metal examples that are on my website, the, like the snare sound, the kick sound, like things sound pretty similar. And, and I think that was what really made me understand that it's like, okay, like I actually have a sound that's... And tendencies. Yeah, I have tendencies. I have a, I have a, a style that's starting to show itself here. And instead of, instead of fighting that, because I think that's also an, an instinct that might come up, right? Like you, it's not what you were going for at the time. And, but it keeps coming out of you and you're like, why? Like, I want it to sound like this. Why does it keep sounding like this? And I think eventually- Well, it's the same reason that uh, when you buy new gear, it doesn't really change the way your mixes sound. Right. Um, it's the same exact thing. That's your style is all the good stuff and the bad stuff. And so, you know, if you have a tendency to uh, mix things a little too thin or a little too harsh, that's- your style at that point in time. Right. So no matter w how warm the analog EQ that you bought is, you're going to dial it to where it sounds harsh because that's your style. And, that's what uh, your ear is looking for, yeah. For some reason. Maybe because it's not developed enough, maybe because you hear things weird, maybe because you just haven't refined your tastes or hearing yet, whatever it might be. But uh, I, I feel like what you're talking about is the exact, I mean, it has a different uh, meaning, I guess, when you're talking about the style you're going for. But I think it actually technically is probably the exact same thing as, uh, you know, you wanted it to sound like Colin Richardson, but it sounded like you. You wanted it to sound like Nolly, but it sounded like you. You wanted your mixes to get warmer by buying this EQ, but they sound just as harsh as ever because right. uh, it's you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, your ear, your ear, especially like, I don't think a lot of people like I think they don't realize how powerful your ears are and I don't mean that from a listening standpoint like I don't mean your ability to pick out like oh that's 4K you know what I mean like as in they control every single decision you make yeah it's not just you know pe I think people when they're training their ears or they're hearing people say you know it's the ear not the gear think they're they're approaching that from like okay these people have refined their ability to hear certain things and this 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 end of it is true by the way but this is this is sort of where it ends for a lot of people is they've refined their hearing abilities to be able to pick out certain things and so they they've managed to bring what is in their heads into their speakers right or out of their cabinet or whatever like they 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 know how to manipulate sound to a point where it sounds like what they want it to sound like but the thing is, is their their individual ears. Like, so your goal then is not to try to figure out how to get Andrew Wade's guitar tone because you like that guitar tone. Because your ears 
are never going to want that guitar tone, even if you think they do. Like, even if you hear it and you like it, as soon as you start dialing stuff in, your ear is going to be looking for something completely different. So... And like you said, they dictate every single decision that you're going to make, especially if you're a musician or an audio engineer. So I think having those realizations of like trying to sound like these guys, you know, have a different goal every time, but it always ends up sounding more or less like me. That's when you have to like, it's on you then to make that decision to embrace, you know, everything. Like you said, the good and the bad, um, because that's the only way that you're going to solidify an identity for yourself and it's better that way i think you know because it's like totally better if i had succeeded in making myself sound like nolly like i would basically just be budget nolly <laughs> you know like hey you want your stuff to sound like nolly but you don't want to pay like 20 grand for a mix or whatever he charges you know like all right come to me which immediately like narrows your niche you know so if you can just embrace what your brain just naturally makes you do, then, you know, peop I think people will find their way to you, you know, because that's that's why a band goes to a producer is because they're like, we like the way your stuff sounds. We want you to make us sound like that. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. And Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. And same with if uh, your mixes are coming out too harsh or something. Once you realize that they do that, no matter what you put them through, no matter what tools you're using, uh, that's when you can start analyzing. Well, why do my mixes? What am I? What am I doing here? What am I hearing fucked? That's making me make a bunch of decisions that lead to this super harsh, thin outcome. Yeah, and you can learn to compensate for that, but you have to be using. You have to be coming at it from the right perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So. On another topic, 
How much of your time does Galactic Empire take? Not as much as a normal working band. Like I, I think, especially, I mean, we've only been touring for like two or three years. A band at our level at this point to maintain any kind of relevance would be on the road like four or five months out of the year. Um, you know, we're in, you know, some of us are in our, like I'm in my late 20s. Grant and Carson are in their mid 30s. Like uh, some of us have kids. We have jobs and houses and things like that. So we can't, like, we're not about, the grind life, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, we might do the longest we'll be away usually is about a month for galactic empire. You know, we'll do a month in the States, two weeks in Europe. We did a week in Japan last year, but I mean more from the preparation standpoint. Cause Oh, that's almost zero now. Oh really? Wow. Cause yeah. that stuff is seriously, you know, difficult sounding at least. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely hard. It's, it's, it's demanding musically, while we were learning the songs, it was very, very difficult and took up a lot of our time. We basically just had, like, you know, whether or not we had day jobs or whatever, any free time that we had that wasn't devoted to something else, we had to be working on the songs and sometimes sacrificing free times, uh, free time in other areas in order to learn those songs. Um, and learning the songs was definitely the hardest part anyway because our, our one guitar player, Mikey, calls it the world's longest game of Simon um, because nothing repeats. Um, and if it does repeat, it's just a little bit different than the last time, whether it's key or tempo or one note changes or whatever because it's, it's the writing of an orchestral composer, not the writing of a metal band, you know? Isn't it funny how people say that metal is just orchestral music with a in a band setting, it's like no, it's not. Right? See, I, th- <laughs> it's, I, it's not. I understand why they think that, right? Because I think that. But sounds, they're wrong, right? The 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 types of melodies, like especially in like a neoclassical, like if you're talking about like early Children of Bodom or something like that. Yeah, no, 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 that's not even the types of melodies. That's the warm up exercises that <laughs> classical musicians use. Right. Yeah, but yeah, and I mean, you know, there will be like sometimes there'll be like complex multi part harmonies in a solo or something like that, or it can be like very dark and moody or whatever and very dynamic so i like i get it i understand and like to to somebody who's not um very familiar with classical music which i admit i'm not super familiar with a lot of it but um empire has given me a a, a, a bigger insight into it you know if you hear a neoclassical com- composition and then you hear somebody play a neoclassical melody on a guitar you're like oh that guy's playing an orchestral song Right. But like when you actually dive into it, you're like, okay, no, this technical death metal song is still just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, end. You know, like it's still even the progressive stuff that doesn't follow that that typical structure. It's still way more typical than almost any orchestral piece you're going to hear. So learning that stuff was really difficult, but especially especially just with how much you drill it and with having to wear the costumes while you play, you have to devote that stuff to muscle memory. Um, So, you know, uh, we're all at the point now where, you know, we can probably close our eyes for a good part of the set and still be able to play. Um, Probably not perfectly. Like I'm not not trying to toot my own horn here. I, I, I mess up plenty of times, but yeah. So now it's just, it's so just baked into our psyche, <laughs> our collective psyche. What went into learning it? 
just hours, hours of uh, like. Well, yeah, but what? Like, how did you go about learning it? Like, what did you do? Just uh, in individual stems. So, so we recorded the first like two or three songs before we had any intention of making it a band. We were just gonna make like we made our one music video, and maybe that'll be it. But we have these other two songs in case like the video gets some views, and we want to do something with it. But the first video got a million hits in eight hours, and then we were getting hit up by TV stations and stuff. So we were like, "Fuck!" Like we actually have to do this live. <laughs> so Grant basically combed through the songs and figured out, okay, these are like these are the melodies that your ear is always drawn to in terms of like what's carrying the song. So that'll be guitar one. So he'll put those into guitar one stems and then so on and so forth for guitar two and guitar three. Bass is obviously just bass and drums is just drums. And then anything that doesn't get put into those stems just gets put into the backing tracks. So he was very helpful in that regard because he he broke everything down and then just sent everyone the stems and, you know, Chris, CJ, Mike, and just named everything so that we knew, like, okay, everything on this stem is my parts. Um, and we learned it from there. It was just learning by ear, you know, just putting it into a Pro Tools session and playing it over and over and over again and, and learning it by ear until we had everything. How long did that take you, man? That stuff is really, really involved. I'd say the better part of like five or six months probably because the first the first music video came out in December of 2015 I think whenever The Force Awakens came out whenever episode 7 was debuting because the world was just foaming at the mouth for anything Star Wars um and, not anymore. Uh, not anymore, <laughs> right? So probably going to have to jump ship sooner or later. Um but yeah, at the time the world was just going crazy for Star Wars related things. So we put that out, but again, we didn't have any intention of making it a live thing. It was just going to be a music video for fun. And then when it took off, the the original the first thing that made us like, okay, we have to actually prepare for this was um we got hit up by E Entertainment and they were like, "We want you to come play that song on our red carpet coverage in LA." And we were like, "You don't understand." <laughs> Like we don't we don't know how to play this stuff. We don't have costumes. Like like the the costumes that we use in the videos are just impossible to to exist in, um, let alone play an actual show. And so we had to um, we had to re-record our our individual parts, like based on the stems that were sent to us. We had to re-record our parts, leave all the mistakes in there. With the exception of Grant, Grant, Grant's drums were live, but the rest of us were just miming on TV and we wore these like Sith robes because we didn't have our costumes yet because we didn't know what to do. So it basically, we went from that, from that point, we arranged the rest of the record, recorded it, and that was just me, Grant, and Carson that did that because the other guys weren't super involved yet. And then, you know, in the meantime, we were getting the label stuff figured out. So we didn't play our, sh our first show until almost a year later. We didn't play our first show until December of 2016. So between finishing the record and then learning everything, it was better part of, yeah, six or eight months, I'd say. So it did take a lot of your time. It did, it did, but it was, but it like, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm better at like compartmentalizing and splitting my time than I'd like to think I am. So I, you know, we were all just using our free time in between our day jobs and things like that. So. Let's talk about compartmentalizing your time and splitting it up. Yeah. How did you split it up? Because you obviously still had to be a parent and a husband and person who earned money and all, all the above. 
It's not like you could drop your life to go do a Star Wars cover. It was a lot of late nights and early mornings, you know, so wake up before anybody else is up, run through the set. After everybody goes to sleep, run through the set. Um, and, and I mean, my wife is very, very understanding and very supportive, and um, she knows, you know, when I'm learning something that, like, it's because I have to, you know? It's not just because, like, I want to learn this cover song for YouTube, you know? So, um, uh, so she, you know, like, sometimes she would even be like, She's like, look, I, I know you want to spend time with us and we want to spend time with you too, but you have to learn these songs. Like, go back there and learn these songs. She has a better work ethic than I do, so that helped. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just any ounce of free time that I could muster, really, while, while still, you know, maintaining all of the, the necessary things in my life. But yeah, social life went out the window. But that goes that goes out the window once you're married and start having kids anyway, so it wasn't a huge hit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, like I said, just just eating all of my all of my free time. I didn't take any clients in that time. I just worked, a, I worked a day job. It just was delivering pizza just so that I could have a nine to five and, uh, or, you know, relative an eight hour work day. And then just any time in between there that I could. So you basically took one for the team stability wise in order to be able to spend the rest of your time doing this. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's like, well, taking one for the team, is pretty much the perpetual existence of anybody who's in the, mu- the musical field, at least early on. You know, is a, your your stability is never quite guaranteed. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was just all right. What do I have to do to make sure that I have my bills covered? You know, so that's priority number one, and then try to make time for the family as much as possible. That's priority number two, and then anything that's not those two things, just it's gone. You know, like I wasn't doing anything with my other band at the time and neither was Mike because he's the other guitar player in that band too. We were all just learning the stuff, you know, and then it was, and then it was rehearsals, which we didn't, we didn't do a whole lot. Well, I mean, I guess we did, I guess we did a good amount of rehearsing, but we only, we were only able to do it on Sundays because that was the only time that anyone was able to make, make themselves available. So, you know, it was like every Sunday for, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that. So the actual practice, though, uh, how did you divide that up? Uh, like band rehearsals or? No, like you learning the shit. How did you divide? Song by song. Just playing it from start to finish, that's it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, yeah. So starting out, learn this bar. Okay, I got it down. Learn that bar. Okay, I got it down. Basically go until I'm no longer able to retain any new information. You know, like. I'll, how long is that for you usually? It depends. <laughs> like it, it depends on how tired I am or how m- much I give a shit that day. Because um, that will always vary. But um, it's usually usually a couple hours probably so I'll spend a couple hours learning and then spend a couple hours drilling the stuff that I've learned and basically do it until you know because there I think anyone who who has any kind of practice regimen will know that or be able to attest to the fact that like you'll you'll learn the part and it'll be hard to get it and then once you get it you start playing it and you're like okay I'm getting better but then it starts declining again because you're just getting tired and and then you start getting frustrated and then it starts getting worse. And then you usually end, at least for me, I usually end my practice time pretty pissed off <laughs> and I'm just like, fuck this. Like I just put my guitar down and leave. Um, but then the next morning when I wake up, suddenly everything's a little bit better in the muscle memory, you know? So like I, I'm able to do stuff better than I was, you know, eight hours ago. Um, and I've also found that I'm up for a tour with another band that I can't 
say anything about aside from the fact that I'm up for a tour. But I've been learning a couple of songs for that. Um, and I've, I've noticed that if I don't practice in the morning, if I just wait until the evening, I'm worse in the evening. Like if I get the bullshit out of the way in the morning and get the frustration out of the way in the morning, then when I get there in the evening, everything is way easier to play. And it's like, it's almost like I warmed up eight hours ahead of time, which is weird because usually like... I, man, I totally used to notice the exact same thing that, uh, you know, playing shows, for instance, even if I got an hour of playing in eight hours before the show, I always played way better. And if I had a writing session or something that night or whatever, even if... I had 30 minutes or one hour or that that's it. And it was in the morning. And then the yeah. next thing happens at night. It's it, generally, I was way better for it always. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, people always tell you that warming up is really important, but I think all of us make the assumption, especially if we're performers that you have to warm up right before the show. Right. So you'll spend two hours warming up and practicing your scales or your songs or whatever. And then you go on stage. Um, and that does work for a lot of people, but sometimes warm, that's a bad idea. Actually, sometimes it is. Yeah, it it depends. It depends on the person. Like, I mean, I know, like for instance, Alex Rudinger. Like, I you know, I've heard nothing but that. Like that dude. Like anytime he's not on stage or under the mics, that dude is warming up. So for somebody, yeah. like, for somebody like him. <laughs> He's just like, I mean, he's just a machine. He's in. I'm not sure if that's warming up or just 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 being a, a robot. Yeah. yeah, that he is. He is a blast beat. He, yeah, basically. he is drums, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but the, you know, so there's people like that who they just warm up for a few hours and then they go hit the stage and they're perfect, um, or at least to everybody else, you know, everyone's their own worst critic. But um, but that, for for me, that never. I was more like that's kind of a bad idea because if I got myself feeling good before the show, I either sort of tired myself out or I got in my own head. Like, all right, we just ran through that. I mean, we, you know, our, our whole system is direct. Like, it, like we just used Axe Effects and um, we're all on in-ears and stuff. Like, so while all the openers are playing, we can be running through our set without anything going through the PA. And so, like, we'll do that sometimes. But that's almost, that can sometimes almost be a detriment to me because if I nail it in that pre-show warm-up, and that was I, the time you nailed it for the night. Right, right. Then I'm in my head. And then when I'm out on stage, I'm like, oh, fuck, I hope I play it as well <laughs> as I did when I was warming up. And then I never do, you know? So um, for me, yeah, it works better to warm up early in the morning. Like, have that be the first thing that you do. Like, wake up, pick up your guitar, practice whatever you need to practice for, like you said, even if it's a half an hour, 20 minutes, whatever, whatever amount of time you're able to allot for yourself. And then when you come back to it, it just feels that much more natural. It's a mental thing as much as it is a physical thing, I think. Yep. Did you ever do visualization? What I mean by that is that I was taught a technique by a violinist once um, that she told me that to really, really learn a solo, you have to be able to play it with your fingers like on your forearm and imagine every single note. Um, you need to be able to basically play it in your head uh, without right. making mistakes. And that sounds easy, but if you actually try to do that from start to finish on something, you'll make mistakes in your mind. It's it, You think you won't, but you will. Uh, right. And she said that once you you get that straight, you'll be fine when you're actually playing the instrument. Yeah, I think... Um I don't know if I do it that like quite that explicitly, but um, but yeah, I mean, 
when I'm having trouble, like for instance, these songs that I'm having to learn that I'm having to learn for this new tour, um, some of the stuff is really fast, which is typically not something that I consider to be my forte, like, you know, sustained fast picking or, you know, fast lead stuff. Like most of the stuff that I do in Galactic Empire is the slower, more melodic lead stuff because it's those, it's the, it's the melody is the main, the main thing that everyone's hearing. It's basically like the vocals of the band. So it's not quite as physically demanding. So this was sort of new ground for me. Um, and there was more pressure to make sure that I got it right. So, you know, if there were parts that I was struggling with, yeah, that visualization really can't, cause you know, I would know where the notes were and I would know the order and the speed in which they needed to be executed, but I kept just tripping over myself. And I found that like things of like, okay, I have to make sure I land on this note. I have to make sure that there's you know, like, th I can't even really explain it beyond what you said, but you picture the shape that your fingers have to make. And then when you do that, somehow it helps. It's like, like you said, it's this weird, it's this mental thing that will, that will then aid the, the physical side of it. Yeah. So that's, that's been, that's been helpful recently. And it's actually also really helpful on the production side of things, especially when programming drums. The one thing that I noticed early on when I started using things like Superior Drummer and stuff is that I need to learn to think like a drummer, even though I'm not a drummer. So if I'm programming a death metal part, I watch a bunch of Alex Rudinger videos and take a, take notice to how he moves. And then like before I program a fill, I like air drum it, <laughs> you know, like. Give me an example of what you mean, like by what he moves, like what kind of things are you looking for? Well, the, the way that he'll do fills or if there's multiple symbols involved, like you have to make sure that you know. So if you're doing, you know, a roll from the snare and then down three toms and then there's a symbol hit, you have to make sure that you're hitting the right symbol, right? Because if you, or you have to make sure that you're only hitting one because you can't go and then and hit both. You can't hit both of your crash symbols. It's physically impossible. But also there's just a way that like, when he accents, like especially like Rudy or um, or Matt Halpern or something, there's a way that those dudes accent certain things that can really help you if you're trying to make your program drums sound more realistic because you can watch how they'll do things and you can see like, okay, there was a couple of ghost notes leaning up to that big snare hit and they all got a little bit higher in velocity each time. So you can kind of get a feel for that. I'm, I'm air drumming here now. No one can see it, but I'm, I'm talking with my hands. But you can get a feel for how that guy moves um, and how he hits a certain drum and how that affects the next hit. I actually think that 75% of why programmed drums sound programmed is because they're programmed unlike the way a drummer would actually play. Or they're not being conscious of velocities. Yeah, well, that too. The That's, that's, that's I guess it, that's I guess, the yeah. part that, well, that's not entirely how he would play. That's also how the drum responds. But still, yeah, those things, uh, but specifically about the, just the programming, the parts themselves. If the parts themselves are totally realistic and what a drummer would do, that's already well over half the battle. Then the velocities get taken care of, and you're close. You're very, very close. Yeah, and I'll usually ran I'll usually do a little bit of randomization in terms of position, too. You know, so I'll, I'll like sort of dequantize it or whatever you want to call it. You know, offset everything a little bit. You just hit a little randomize button, and it's like you know ten percent, five percent, whatever, depending on how um, how loose you want everything to be. But then that 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 ups the realism even more, you know, because even a perfect drummer 
if you slow it, slow the footage down to as slow as it can possibly go, you'll realize that the kick is not actually falling exactly where the crash does. You know what I mean? Like, cause it's physically impossible to be that perfect. So, um, you know, just having those little inconsistencies, it's not, it's not something that you can hear really, but like, it's not, it's not something that you can hear and be like, Oh yeah, the crash isn't hitting where the kick is because it sounds like it is, but just having that little bit of an offset makes it feel that much more real so yeah that's that's uh definitely a good thing like if you're trying to learn to program drums uh, the the first thing that you got to do is watch how a drummer plays um because even if you're like again i keep using rudy as an example but um if you watch a person enough if you get to a part that just boom ka, boom ka, you can literally see in your brain how high he's bringing his hand up before he hits the snare and that will determine the velocity at which you place that hit, you know, um, or he'll do this, he'll do this thing like on blast beats. If he's using the ride symbol, he'll be on the body of the ride, but then hit the bell intermittently. So it'll be like, did ding, did ding, did ding, did ding, like just little, little things like that. Instead of just ding, 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 you know, on the, on the bell of the ride. Like if you notice the little nuances of things like that, it really helps. And I can confirm cause I've worked on his drums a few mm. times uh, as amazing as he is, and he is amazing. Like he is unbelievable. I've I've heard I've heard tracking him is just like an absolute dream. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a phenomenal experience. However, those tracks are not perfectly, you know, metronomically to the grid. They're very human. They don't need to be very edited because they sound great. If anyone wants an example of what I'm talking about, uh, nail the mix has a, a song by a band called Cognizance. It actually comes free with your subscription, so uh, you can check out his drums that I recorded uh, that have no edits on them, and you'll see that they sound amazing. They sound great, but they're not. It's not like they're perfectly robotic or anything. They don't need to be. Yeah, right. I think that's the one of the one of the detriments of today's technology is that is that assumption, you know, that like you'll just be able to make it make it sound like that or that you know a perfect drummer especially if you're programming drums like a perfect drummer is 100% on the beat all of the time and hitting as hard as they can all of the time that's not how it works you know um, when someone says like use as much power as you can they're yeah I mean you you should like you want to hit the drums hard because that's what makes them sound good that's what they're like that's peak performance but you have to you have to know that like the reason that a drummer sounds good is because of the type of dynamics that they have. You know, if Matt Halpern were just hitting everything at full blast all the time, it would sound absurd and not in a good way. <laughs> you know, it's because it's because he'll go ahead or behind the beat or like let it let it drag a little bit and he's super dynamic in his accents and things like that. Like it's it's things that are in some ways actually imperfections that are the reason that he has that people like that have such an identity. Yeah, well, the thing is perfection is a stupid thing to chase because it's not possible. Right. So, you know, it's there's relative perfection that we're capable of, but as humans we're just we're not we're not capable of of that and and anyways the results are not good when you can create something like that it doesn't yeah we don't resonate with it right yeah it, yeah if you listen to a record that is sonically perfect it sounds sterile like there's no there's no life to it if if every guitar note is cut right at the transient and quantized 100 percent, and same thing with the drums and 
um, you know, the the whether it's completely programmed or there's samples layered, but the velocities on those samples aren't you know taken care of the right way, and just if everything is over edited and overproduced and things like that, then it 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 takes all of the life out of it, and you might depending on your level you know, where you're at in terms of how you're like, whether or not you're able to identify exactly what those problems are, you might not be able to understand what those problems are, but like, you'll, you'll just understand that it's like, no, nah, I don't really like that band. They just, they like, they, they sound weird. You know, <laughs> it doesn't sound right. Yeah. And you know, the thing, the thing is I would just make the argument that that's not perfection because it sounds weird. Uh, so yeah. perfect perfection is something that, uh, we can't approximate. We don't understand. There's some sort of perfect number for everything, for every part, in terms of how close to the grid it should be and all that. But it's different for every part, and yeah, it's it's almost like trying to comprehend a math equation that's way out of our out of our grasp. But having everything at 100 percent is not the solution. There, right. It's something. It's something different, and we know that intuitively. Because when we hear things that are at 100%, they sound weird. Obviously, going too far the other way, it sounds shitty to us. So there's something in there for that's different for every band, every song, every production that's perfect. But I don't think everything at 100% or 127 is actually perfect. I think that that's overshooting the mark. The thing is that you can only really get to that actual perfection by, I don't want to say luck, but by all the elements coming together just right. Mm -hmm. You know, like the players are just right at the right time where everyone was in the right mood with the right engineer, with the right gear, with the electricity is right and nobody's hungry. You know what I mean? Like all these different things. (laughs) Nobody's hungry. I like that, yeah. Yeah, because that makes you play worse. Right. You know, there's just so many different factors that go into it that I don't think you can really, you can't predict it. Right. Well, I mean, the the I guess one of the, one of the best examples of it, of, of sort of illustrating that your ear actually craves what would technically be considered imperfection is harmonic distortion, right? The reason that a vintage mic sounds good to our ears is because of the levels of harmonic saturation that are inherent in that mic. That mic is distorting in a way that is pleasing to your ears. Same thing with a preamp. Right. Same. It's the reason why all of these, you know, you get that anything on the slate bundle and it's got a saturation button and you turn it on. You're like, I don't know why, but it sounds great now. It's because it's distorting, which is technically making the signal less pure. Right. The way that something distorts, the way that something becomes imperfect somehow makes it more pleasing to your ears. I mean, to me, it makes it more perfect. Right. I don't to me, pure and perfect are not the same thing. Right. Exactly. Or if you listen to like a, a, a different, you know, sort of other side of the spectrum example is if you listen to a choir, right? Everybody in one section of the choir is technically singing the same pitch, but they're not, right? Because it's a it's like 12 humans trying to hit the same note and they're all kind of feeding off of one another to make sure that they're in the right register, but not everyone's 100% perfect. There's some inconsistencies in there, but that's what makes it sound like there's 12 people singing that part singing that one section of the choir and then when you get the whole choir together it's it just it amplifies right so if everyone were singing the exact same pitch it would all just sound like one note it's not just that it's also the timbre of their voices and right all that stuff but still yeah if it was a good way to test this is if you have 
one person and you record them 12 times and then Melodyne or Autotune the shit out of that note, mm-hmm. um, make sure that they sang it the same way every time, it's not going to sound like a choir. It just isn't. Right. It's going to sound kind of weird. Yeah, it's yeah, it's going to sound very weird, and sometimes it might phase like they the takes might phase one another out if you get it too perfect. Like those imperfections are what make things perfect. So it's it's a weird, but like you know, humans aren't perfect, so it's it should technically be natural that we crave imperfection in some form. So I think that what perfect is is the feeling of just right. Mm-hmm. So a, an amount of something that's just right, not too much, not too little, too much, uh, you know. It's the Goldilocks principle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we could coin that. Right it is now. though. Yeah. It is hundred percent in my opinion. It is uh, because what's perfect about something that's so pure it makes us feel weird or feel nothing. How is that perfect? That's not perfect. That's shitty. Right. Perfect is something that makes people react in the desired way. Um, so, you know, you could take a Queen recording, for instance, like a Bohemian Rhapsody or whatever, mm-hmm. some classic like that, that people, generation after generation after generation, love it. Like, don't just like it, love it. And uh, maybe there's some pitch anomalies here and there and whatever, uh, but how can anyone say it's not perfect? How could it not be Right. How could it be more perfect? Yeah, you know what's it's 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 interesting that you brought up the Melodyne thing because and I, I like I you know I use autotune and Melodyne and things like that um pretty regularly. But that being said, like when you compare it to a band like Queen or compare it to a band like Zeppelin, like you wonder like when you get used to using a vocal tuning software so much, you start thinking like man like how fucking good, I mean, and this is this part's true, but it's like how fucking good did Robert Plant have to be to like actually sing like that and have really no good, correct, like yeah, no corrections, no whatever, and yeah, really, really good. But also, the next time you listen to Zeppelin, if you try to remove your enjoyment from the experience for a minute and just be as critical as you possibly can about everything that you're listen to, listening to. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's it's littered with mistakes, littered with them. Like his there's there's parts like if he's if he's singing two uh two lines on the same melody, they're not in tune with each other. They're not ending at the same time because they didn't have vocal line back then and they didn't care. Jimmy Page, you know, on a lot of songs will use one really shitty amp and record it 15 times and the guitar sound will be this weird like amalgamation of all those different noises and it's sound it's not something that you can recreate it's not something that even really sounds good by itself but in the context with everything else it's your it's that song that you then call perfect right so i think that we've been we've been chasing that perfection for so long that we're just getting further and further away And I mean, look, I record technical death metal most of the time. Like, I record these bands that just want everything robotic and perfect. So I'm not saying that I'm some pioneer of, like, I'm going to bring us back, you know, make make music great again. I'm not (laughs) trying to do that. Um, But just, you know, when you get really critical of those old classics that you've just never bothered being critical of because they just made you feel a certain way you you figure it out that it's like no they they were wrong you know <laughs> like they did made mistakes i i think that music's just fine and musicians are just fine nowadays and there's lots of great stuff and in 20 years we'll have classics from now too it's just too 
soon to call anything a classic because we're living in the time period. And every time period has its bad music. The thing is, you don't remember a lot of the bad music from older time periods. But right. just think, I don't know if you remember what local bands sounded like in the 90s with their demos, but holy shit. I was born they, in 92, so no, Okay, I so remember. you don't. <laughs> they recorded on tape... And, you know, with all that stuff that people fetishize over now, and they, in general, sounded like fucking shit. Horrible. Like, worse than the bad, bad recordings you hear now yep. of, of local bands. They were, man, those demos were just the most horrendous shit. <laughs> and, and, but nobody remembers it because there's no record of it, right? Like, there was no internet, so... All of it just got swallowed by the void, thank God. And I guess it's human nature too, but it makes people romanticize the past. Like, shit was a lot better. It's like, no, it wasn't. You just don't remember how bad it was uh, because we don't have stuff constantly reminding us. Well, yeah, yeah, right. Shit, And it, I think it's uh, there's definitely validity to that, and I think that... Okay, for instance, like I said, like I was born in 92, right? So I don't have much memory, if any memory at all, of the 90s. You know, I remember a couple of days of second grade and stuff, like right before it turned, right before it became 2000. You know, I, my memories are very limited. Um, but, like, from that perspective, it would be way easier for me to look back at the 90s and see Nirvana, who's incredibly imperfect, by the way, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, uh, Pearl Jam, whatever, like those big grunge bands that came out and be like, man, that's when shit was real. Like none of this Katy Perry bullshit right now. But it's like you're you're but there narrowing, was that right, shit exactly, back then. exactly. You're narrowing your scope to this one area of things. That's like when people, you know, when like those old metalheads are like, oh. So much bullshit today, man. Like, I miss it back in the day when it was just like Metallica, Slayer, and Pantera or whatever, you know? And you're just like, yeah, but that wasn't all there was. Like, Michael Jackson was big that time, too. You know? <laughs> like, And there were also the 50,000 other bands that tried to sound just like Slayer and Pantera who were terrible. The, uh, there were a bunch of those. Just no one heard. No one heard them because they never because there wasn't an internet, and so they, no one knew how saturated the market was with copycats. Yeah, but they were they were definitely out there, and they're forgetting that pop music was huge, and that there was good pop and bad pop, just like now. Yeah, there was so much bad pop, and like with Michael Bolton being the best of it. Uh, you know, Michael Bolton. Just think back. There was an era where Michael Bolton was big. Or Michael fucking Bolton was big, and then he was the best of like that bad, bad dentist office pop right. that was big in like the early nineties. I love that like, you term. That's amazing. Go to the dentist office and you hear songs like that, but worse. Yeah, all the time. It's like so people say that. Yeah, music's bad now. It's like, bro, you've got a short memory. <laughs> it's yeah. always been bad. And it's always been great. Yeah, pe those those people never watched uh, VH1 Classic when that was. I don't even know if that's a channel anymore, but they used to, they used to play just a bunch of like old '80s music videos. But it was like, it was like six hours of like the White Lions, and then mm -hmm. and then one song from Motley Crue. You know what I mean? So it's like they just it was just full of just all of like the B, C, D level hair metal copycat bands and then you'd get one song from a band that you actually knew and liked. So it's like yeah. that that's the perfect example, especially in the hair metal era is like everyone was trying to be everyone else and I think that's really what started 
the mentality of like, oh, everyone's just trying to do the same thing. You know what I mean? But it's like, yeah, but then again, you just even if you keep it within metal, everyone was trying to do the same thing and be the same hairband and whatever. But then Metallica was like, fuck that. And now we so, have Metallica, you know? <laughs> like, so there's always heroes. The, the studio I talked about earlier that I went to where I replaced the guitar yeah. player. Yep. So Guns N' Roses was a huge band at that time. It was like 93 or something. Mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses was like the biggest band on the face of the planet besides Metallica. Mm-hmm. Um, and that guy was like, had that old guy complex of like, shit was better in my day. So what he would just always say was, Man, they're just doing what the Rolling Stones did. And then I would hear people a few, like 15 years after that, be like, Avenged Sevenfold just doing what Guns N' Roses did. What the fuck? It's people don't change. That's the thing. They, they just think they're the, they think they're the first ones to discover anything because, you know, they weren't at the age of discovering things when earlier things happened, obviously, because they weren't born yet or they were little kids. But that, none of that stuff ever changes. I think people just, romanticize the past they think music was better at some point it wasn't yeah it's, it seems like with every generation people become more um more self-qualified to be critics of whatever form of media they're consuming and more outspoken about it like i saw there was a there was like a satire article or at least i think it was satire if it wasn't it'd be fucking hilarious but there was an article that was like uh Game of Thrones writers petition fans to write their own goddamn show if they're so smart, you know, <laughs> like, and it's just like everybody's so, like you said, like everyone's just so, oh, it was better. It was better back then. It, it was better before this happened. It was better before that guy fucked it up with all of his whatever. You know what I mean? But then, you know, you look the people will look back on it years from now and be like, that was, that was perfection, you know? It wasn't. No. If anyone thinks shit was perfect back then, they should try to watch the Mission Impossible TV show. There was a TV show? Oh yeah, there was a there were there was a TV show in the 60s, I believe, but then they rebooted it in the late 80s, a few years before Tom Cruise took it and ran with that ball. Okay. So gloriously. Uh yeah, it was not uh it was not cool, but people thought it was really cool back then. Man, everything is a reboot. <laughs> everything it's like I, you know, everyone says especially with movies now everyone's like oh nothing original is coming out it's all reboots but I think that like I had no idea Mission Impossible was a TV show so it's like those movies are just just playing off of that they're just rebooting that found out that flat like the the version of Flash Gordon that Queen did their song for that was a reboot of a show that came out like 20 years or a movie or something that came out 20 years before that so it's like it's just it's the same shit's been happening forever and it's going to yeah. keep happening. It's just the people in that era are just going to look back to whatever came before it and be like, oh, you're just you're just ripping off that guy. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that things get rebooted. There's some great ideas out there that uh, – or there's, there's great ideas and relevant ideas out right. there that just need to be repackaged or rephrased for a younger generation to understand. I mean – why not do that? Great. I think that great ideas that are universal, that universality doesn't go away. The only thing that goes away is the style of a certain time or idioms of a certain time. So why not repackage something universal? It makes sense to me. Yeah, it does. And I mean, <laughs> I think if you if you shrink that down, it makes it it makes a better argument for like people to stop telling bands and writers and directors what to do. Cause it's like, if it's stupid, you know, based on everything that we just talked about, 
if it from that perspective is stupid to romanticize the past, the past being 20, 30, 40 years ago, then it's really stupid to romanticize two albums ago. Right? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. What, like, if you're the type of dude that approaches like Misha at NAM and is like, you know what, dude, you guys haven't put anything good out since P1. Like, fuck you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just, what the fuck do you know, man? It's it just, don't don't be a punisher. It's dumb. Stop telling everyone that they should have done what they did before. Like, that's not, that's not how anybody progresses. You know, even if what they just put out was shit, you know, whether it's Periphery or anybody else, if you think that what they put out just now was shit, look at it as like, you know, if things go as well as they possibly could, then they, like for you, from your perspective, then they will have, they will eventually realize that record was shit. We need to make a better one. And then they'll put out a record that rules. You know what I mean? Like, ev- like everybody's human. Everybody's just trying to do their own shit. I think that if they have a problem with the latest periphery, they should start a periphery. No, they should just step on a fucking Lego, man. Like, well, that too. <laughs> just shut up. Or start a periphery like tribute band, but write original. So like you know how they have these so be tribute all the bands, bands that, be, all, be all the bands that came out like five years ago. But actually call it something after periphery and do periphery covers. Eriffa Pep. You know what I'm talking about? Like have you seen these like these like tribute bands that like they'll be like Kiss or Iron Maiden or Slipknot? Like they're yeah, like while the band while the band's still relevant. Yeah, so all the bands still relevant. That's the best part about it. So I think that one of those bands should start writing new songs as the band that they're imitating uh, and see what happens. I just want to see what happens. Right. Like, I want to see if the tribute, like the trip. First of all, I really like the new Slipknot, but I want to I hear. I thought it was great. It was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, I want to hear the, the tribute Slipknot write a new Slipknot song or something. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think there was that there was that video that came out. I don't even know how long ago it is now, but like, there's that Sli- Slipknot tribute band playing some like neighborhood barbecue, and it's you know it's got to be like Kentucky or <laughs> some shit like that. And the uh, the percussionist brought a brought a keg out to like let members of the audience like hit with the bat during duality, you know. And the video is <laughs> the video is just the one dude just like just slamming the keg with the back with the bat and there's so much recoil that the bat just fucking whacks him in the face and knocks him out cold. It's fantastic. Like so so if there's more videos like that that come out from these uh, from these bands then I'm then I'm all for it. But you know who knows? Like may, you know, maybe maybe you're right. If you're the kid that's like everything this band's doing is everything that this band's doing sucks right now. Do that tribute band, and maybe you'll be like clone the band and write their next album. Yeah, clone the band, do it better, and then maybe you'll be hired as the singer for that band. Like, like a, if anyone's ever seen the movie Rockstar, I fucking love that movie when I was a kid. But yeah, it's it's ba- I think it's based on what happened with Judas Priest. But there's a dude who's in a tribute band for the band called Steel Dragon uh, that is currently the biggest band in the world, like the biggest heavy metal band in the world. And his, he and his friends are in a tribute band to this band, and they are so 100% locked into the letter, like within the purity of whatever that band was, that when the singer of Steel Dragon leaves, that this dude gets tapped as the singer of Steel Dragon, right? And then it's a whole progression from there. So who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe maybe Periphery sucks, and in two years, your tribute band will get noticed, and then you will be the new Spencer Satello. You will be Periphery. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. I'm going to wager not, <laughs> but maybe, maybe, to each their own. What would happen if one of those tribute bands wrote, uh, like, actually wrote the album as 
that band like the clone band did and then people started liking the tribute band better than the original band that I just want to see this happen. I yeah. want to see this here's happen. The, here's the thing and this is funny cuz it brings the conversation full circle. I think eventually that band's going to get sick of writing periphery stuff or what they think is periphery stuff and eventually develop an identity of their own and all that th- all that's going to have happened is they will have stolen the spotlight in this scenario they will have stolen the spotlight from periphery and taken it and now brought their own style to it and now they're big because people yeah. like their style and not peripheries. But there will invariably be some tribute band for that because for they'll like the way they used to sound. Hey, maybe that maybe that's what we need, man. Maybe we just need. Well, uh, you know what? It's it's funny. Like we're we're coming up with this ridiculous scenario, but it's sort of true. It's not that ridiculous. That's the it's thing. Not. These tribute bands actually, some of them are running for like twenty or thirty years straight, and they're serious, serious bands that like. And now they yeah, and they have their own identities now as a tribute band. Yeah, it's weird stuff. All right, dude, it's been fun having you on. I think it's a good <laughs> time to end. Yeah, end yeah. This. And hopefully, hopefully this uh, take three or four. Hopefully, this is the one that uh, that people get to hear. Yeah, I think so. We only covered parasailing twice. Right. Right. <laughs> if anyone wants to know what we were talking about, we were talking about a video where a parasail detaches from a boat, and the people r- riding it fly into a building. But uh, yep. all right, Chris, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, man. Have a good one. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast was brought to you by Sonarworks. Sonarworks is on a mission to ensure everybody hears music the way it was meant to be across all devices. Visit sonarworks.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and subscribe today.